Of all the people I've interviewed, few have been as influential to me as my next guest. People talk about the importance of never giving up, teaching yourself, and doing something just because you love it. That's Scott Schumann in a nutshell. Scott didn't just participate in street style photography, he pioneered it. Before Scott, not many people knew what ordinary folks were wearing. No one beyond the industry paid too much attention to P.T. Womo or what people wore outside of fashion shows. Then along came the sartorialist. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is the sartorialist himself, Scott Schumann. Scott and I discuss the origins of the sartorialist, the importance of a creative voice, and how he's continued to evolve his work outside of fashion. Let's do it. Mr. Scott Schumann, you're on the pod. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. There's a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about. Obviously, um, you're a hero of mine and definitely a bit of a, a trailblazer in terms of creating a format that I fell in love with but didn't know exist. Thank uh, you. And I'm, I want to talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about how you've been evolving this, this new book that you're going to be putting out soon, too. There's tons and tons of stuff to talk about, but I, I will, we'll go right back to the beginning. Uh, so when we had chatted initially, you said your, your story is a little bit similar to Todd Snyder's. Yeah. And you th- could listen to the first half of his and just put my <laughs> name in and replace, where is he from? Iowa? Yeah, because you're from replace Indiana, Replace Indiana right? with every time he says Iowa, and that's me, basically. Well, wait, how did you get to New York? Uh, the Bloomingdale's executive training program. Okay. Um, I was lucky enough to be one of the people that they hired from Indiana, but it, more, it was the idea of listening to him with this idea of, you know, you come from the Midwest, right? You don't know anybody in fashion. So you assume everybody in New York that's doing that job is very bright and really knows everything about art and knows everything about design. And, and I didn't know anybody in fashion or anyone to talk to. So you know, what I really related to what he was saying was that um, I, you know, really didn't overcompensate, but I really worked very hard in college. You know, I learned how to sew. I took art history classes. Where'd I you go to college? At IU. Oh, right. And um, because I just thought, oh, the, these people are going to tear me up. If I am not like so ready, you know, and so prepared, um, you know, I'll never make it in New York. Well, what was the end goal when you came to New York? I mean, you were doing the training program, but what was like, what was the, the, the summit? Well, one thing, and I think Todd was like this too. I think a lot of people from the, mid, the Midwest are like this. You know, I wanted, all I wanted to do was do something important in fashion. I didn't necessarily want to be famous. I didn't really care about being rich. But, you know, Armani was a hero of mine when I was growing up. And I thought, oh, he's really cool. I want to do something like that. But when I was in college, I took design classes and could look at my own work and say, "Uh, I'm not Armani. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm just, all I'm doing is second rate knockoffs here. And my dad had done, was always in sales and creating sales training things and a lot of media. Okay. um, Filming and slideshows, all the things that were important at that time in the, you know, late 70s and 80s. And um, so I thought I'd go into sales. You know, it was the only thing that I could do. I worked at a mall. I knew that I could talk about fashion and things. And um, so I did sales training, or I did sales and sales and marketing. So I thought I would probably end up, hopefully, you know, president of a company or something of a designer company. Right. Um, 
and you know, I progressed along that path for quite a while and you know, worked at GFT, Valentino, and um, Liz Claiborne, and you know, a bunch of other kind of big companies. And then in the late 90s, I opened my own showroom. Yeah, I was going to say, that's when I first at least knew your story started. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, if they read Wikipedia, get me <laughs> and uh, Michael Bastian confused because somebody, right? whoever wrote that Wikipedia, and I, after 13 years, still haven't gone in and corrected it, um, they, they somehow have blended me and Michael Bastian. Well, so you I never... were the first photographer, and I think to, to give Michael... The, the credit at the beginning. I mean, I remember seeing the photos you took of this new guy in this new collection. Yeah. Well, he was at Bergdorf and yeah. they, you know, I mean, a lot of people were very supportive right from the very beginning. Right. And, uh, and he was one of them and, and uh, Robert Burke and a lot of those guys. But, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so I got out of school and, you know, I worked at these places, worked at, at um, had my own showroom. But then after 9-11, mm-hmm. everything came to a, a standstill. You know, there were new, no new designers to work with. Stores weren't paying their, uh, weren't paying their bills. Uh, I became a stay-at-home dad until I wanted to figure out what might. I didn't choose to become a stay-at-home dad. It was one of those things where the nanny left. She never came back. I kind of was watching them, and until I figured out the next thing, um, I loved doing it. I started taking pictures of them, and. Um, after a while, you know, blogs came up, and I kind of saw that there was this potential of mixing what I knew about photography and shooting outside, learning how to shoot my kids outside and in natural light, and really studying people like Steve McCurry and August Sander. And so, kind of took this chance of mixing what I knew about photography with what I already knew that I knew about fashion, right. and putting it on a blog, which was inexpensive, was free. Yeah, it's perfect price for me at that time. And it just kind of took off from there. So wait, the sartorialist, air quoting here, yeah. was at first a stay-at-home dad who l- learned his trade via practicing on his kids? Yes. I mean, for the first couple of months, I mean, until I made enough money, because right. I had started the sartorialist, but it, you know, it was a total hobby. No one was making money in blogs at that time. Nobody had even made a name for themselves in blogs at that time. So, um, and it was kind of a fun side thing for me to do. But for literally the first six months, I bet, seven months, you know, I'd have whatever time I could carve out for myself to go out and shoot. And then you don't know how many times I'd be on the subway racing back to pick up my youngest <laughs> daughter at, um, at uh, daycare or running uptown to pick up my older daughter from school. And it was really, you know, it was a hectic time right. trying to make that happen. And still, when I was with my kids, not not be distracted. You know, when I was with my kids, focus on being with my kids and focus at, at what I knew was a very special moment, very special time in my life. But then also trying to make that thing happen, this nebulous thing that nobody had really made happen and kind of try to figure that out and balance between those two. Um, it was, you know, I look back now and think, oh, I, I, it was a crazy time. Do you think you did it right? Yeah, I mean, you know, neither of my kids are in jail. Yeah. Um, so, and they're, they're both good kids. And, you know, I, I, who knows how, if you do it right or not, you know, it's, right. um, I did, um, all I know is I, I worked as hard as I could and worked as smart as I could and did what I thought was right at that time. Yeah. I, I, the reason why I asked that is because as, you know, my daughter's seven months old, I'm, you know, doing this podcast, I have other jobs, I'm trying to find a way to support. And 
I have a little bit of an issue separating, you know, my being present with my family and trying to work. And it's, I sometimes create this circle of, well, I need to work so I can be more present. Like if, if I can take care of us, then, then we're okay. Then I, then I can really be there. So I'm actually in my head, I justify this, like I'm doing this for, for you. When really I often wrestle that like, no, I think I'm just vain. Like, I think I'm just doing this for me. And I, I don't, so, but to hear you say that really kind of perked me up because that that's something that's so important that I think a lot of families, parents, young entrepreneurs really wrestle with is being present with yeah. family. And and for you to just like you said that like it was nonchalant, like that that speaks to a lot of why I think you're you're doing it right. Yeah. I mean it was really um you know, the thing is so beautiful is that my time, like when I started traveling early, I couldn't wait to get back to them because you know, at heart, I'm a big kid. I'm incredibly immature, and uh, which makes me a great play date. Um, and you know, it was really when I would get back with them, it was, you know, just so. Um, it was such a stress relief because I could really play with. You know, they were very young when I started doing this. You yeah. know, Claudia was like three, and and Isabel was five or six. So, um, you know, that's why I love being. A, and I was, I think, I was pretty good stay at home dad. You know, because yeah. you know, I was. I liked being with them and, you know, I'm reasonably shy. Um, wait, I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm reasonably shy and I, I guess I always felt comfortable, you know, uh, being around my kids and um, taking them to the park and, you know, I'm very playful. And I think, you know, I, learning that and, you know, when I was doing sales and marketing, I was very much a grown up. Right. And that time I spent with my kids, you know, I learned how to um, get in touch with my inner child. Now, wait, I'm going to cry again. Um, no, but it really, when you're saying things out loud to your kids, you know, things that you feel of how they should look at the world and um, what kind of people they should be, how they should treat people, um, it really cements it in your own heart. And at that time was when I started uh, taking photographs and, and, and taking pictures and, you know, saying that to them, how you should treat people equally, how you should look at them. And it, they might not have earned the respect, but at least give them the respect and, and, um, and try and put a positive feel in the world. And, and when you're saying that to your kids, and then you pick up a camera and you go out and you shoot around the city, um, you can't help but have that reflected in the photographs. And I think the yeah. one thing I'm very proud of is that, to me, it's never mattered who the people were you know, whether it was a fashion editor at a fashion show or a guy in Brooklyn or shooting in Harlem or India or wherever, you know, I think I've, I'm very proud of the fact that I think you can look at any of those images and they're shot with the same level of respect, the same level of, um, of not, I don't want to say admiration, but, you know, I don't ever shoot down at people. You know, I think I really try to see them in their best light and portray them in their best light. So That's I think not it was, what normal photographers do, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm calling that out because I think what you may say, someone may listen to and be like, yeah, of course. But not every photographer has that attitude in no. which, like, in pure respect for the subject. Sometimes it is, I'm going to view you the way I think you are, and I'm, my photo is going to show the viewer the way I think you are. And you're completely unbiased. Well, and I think one of the things, and it's one of the, it was actually, the, I think the first story I wrote in the first book is that um, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know the truth. I mean, it's, and it's, 
you know, so much at the core of, of the way I shoot, you know, I'm not trying to tell people who this person is. You know, there was years that, you know, I didn't put people's names on, you know, only, you know, yeah, some of the people who've become true. my friends over the, the years, do I put their name? But, you know, the very first story in the very first book is basically this kind of idea of ignorance is bliss. And it's a picture of Lino. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, you know, People ask me all the time, I go to Italy so much, why don't you learn Italian? I don't want to learn Italian because I don't want to know what Lino is saying. I don't want to know (laughs) what a lot of these guys are saying because my imagination is that they're saying something really smart. Yes. And once I learn Italian, I'm going to realize they're just a, you know, he's just a dude like everybody else. Yep. And I don't want to know that. And so I I wrestled with that very early and, and I decided, you know, I'm not a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. You know, these are my romantic ideas of how I think these people could be. And so it's, someone asked me one time, it was one of my first um, photo exhibits with James Danziger, and a guy who was a teacher at a school brought in some students, and he asked me a question, and he said, um, are these photographs of these people, or are these your photographs of these people? Mm. And I'd never thought of it. it was, this was years ago. And, and most people, I think, would say, no, no, this is a photograph of this person. And I thought about it, and I said, you're right. This is my photograph of that person. Cause this is my imagination because I don't, most of these people I've never met. Sure. So I, I don't know who they are and I don't really care who they are because I'm, I'm kind of capturing that moment, you know? And, um, and I just look at people I, usually in a, I, I try to always look at them in a positive light. So that's just, is how the, the photographs end up coming up is, um, you know, I, I'd rather put a positive feeling in the world than, you know, kind of looking down at someone or trying to make myself look better or whatever it is. You know, and there's a lot of photographers that do that, not necessarily street style photographers, but yeah. like, you know, I don't know if I would ever want to have my picture taken by Jurgen Teller, you know, right. he's a great photographer, but he's tough. He is tough, 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 you know? Um, and there's a lot of photographers like that. But, um, so for me, you know, I think it was just a, it was a great coincidence. Everything worked out just right. You know, I learned, you know, I think I taught my kids a lot. But I learned a lot from them, and I really reconnected with my um, inner child, with the artist that was deep, 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 deep inside of me, that I'd been such a business person for years. And so, you know, going out and and literally, not figuratively, but literally running around the playground with them and taking pictures, or just when we were playing, you know, and um, going to the sandbox. And they, you know, the the park I'd always go to is the Bleecker Park that's right across from where all those Marc Jacobs are and all right. of that in Bleecker. Right. And, you know, when you're sitting there with your kids and they've got like, there's a, a part of the park and it's like a little um, lunch stand, right? Mm-hmm. Like a little um, counter where you would act like you were serving or getting lunch. And I'd ask Claudia, oh, what have you got? And she'd tell me this stuff. And I'd say, well, I want a pizza and I want a pizza with um, toenails and uh, a belly button lint and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when you let yourself go there all day, it's a perfect place where you to learn that creativity, to get in touch with that creativity and to get in touch with um, trying new things and having fun. And, um, and so it was just like a super, super special, magical time in my life. It was nerve wracking because I didn't know <laughs> what my next job was going to be. You know, right. I loved shooting, but I had no idea where my future was going to be. And doing a blog thing was not necessarily the answer because you didn't know at that time. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad I went down that, that road and took that chance. Yeah. Well, I have news for you. I think you did all right. I think, well, thank I think you did the right thing. <laughs> thank you. Because, you know, first off, that story is really beautiful. And I, that, that 
I respect you so much more by just hearing like that was your craft versus I read five books and that now I did it. And it's like, yeah. no, it was so much more. But I first interacted and learned about you via your stuff at Pity. And uh-huh. you were, and I think this is very clear and many photographers would say this, you were the first photographer to really, uh, one, to create a format of street style. And then to also, like, you made all these mini celebrities out of all of these people at Pity. And you also, you know, you kind of paved the way of the whole, like, hashtag menswear, like, suiting and movement. Because you were taking these photos, but you also, you know, yeah, your, your, your blog had photos of people on it. But you would explain things. Like, I didn't know about Albazar. I didn't know anything oh, about yeah. that. You you wrote about that. Yeah. And and magazines at the time that I was reading, they weren't writing about that. I mean, maybe they did after you did, but what who told you to to go to PT Womo to go and check that stuff out? Well, the um the first job I ever got okay. was, you know, I started the blog in September 2005 and right. by June 2006, um uh actually I think the first person to call was this guy, Tyler Thorson, who's now at Ralph Lauren. Oh, yeah. He was at style.com at the time. He called and said, Hey, you want to go to Milan for fashion week? <sighs> How did he know I wanted to go there? <laughs> of course I want to go. <laughs> of course. And pretty quick, you know, because the blog, you know, Bill Cunningham had been doing street style, you know, and his famous sport. You're right. And, um, but he did it with a very different eye. He shot more, much more women. Yeah. He shot people that were much more eccentric. Um, where I think mine, you know, the thing I think I did well is my point of view was just so different from his and so different than anything anyone else had seen at that time. I think my, who I chose to shoot was what got me through in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then I had to let my, um, photograph, my photographic ability catch up to that. Um, and so the first job I got was style.com. And when I went, you know, and this is what I talk about, you know, working smart and thinking things through. I had been in fashion for a long time, and when I had the showroom, I went to Fashion Week a lot and helped my designers with their shows. So I knew what Fashion Week was like, and I knew that editors sat on one side, photographers were on the other side, and there was no mixing in between those two. Hmm. And I knew that if I went to Fashion Week, if I looked like an editor but was shooting, especially with menswear, that I would kind of stand out a little bit. And that people would start saying, who's that guy? What, uh, what's he doing? Why does he look like an editor and why is he taking photographs? And not at the pit, <laughs> but these other things. Right. And um, so I really used that to my advantage because I knew they would be different. And I, I've never been one to kind of, um, I don't want to say not market myself, but I just knew how I thought it would probably go. That people would come over or I'd stop and take a picture and, and we would just naturally start talking about fashion. And I think what happened is you know, they would say, oh, he's not just a photographer, he's got a, a fashion point of view. And right. so pretty quick, you know, everybody started coming out of the woodwork, you know, um, Nick from um, Esquire offered me something and, yeah. and GQ offered me something. And so, um, and pretty quick, those people, because they're all very smart people, Nick's very smart, and all the guys at GQ are really smart. And they started saying, you got to go to Pitti Um okay. I had never been there. I knew what trade shows were. But so the next season, I think it was probably January 2007, I went to Pity for the first time. And, um, and it was great. You know, there was hardly, you know, there wasn't all the circus that there is now. <laughs> right. Um, but I think the magic 
and it, it had already started when I went that first season to, to Milan because I had always dreamed about going there. Armani is my, you know, all time hero, mm-hmm. as you see from the picture behind you. Yeah. Which that's, a, that's, uh, that's a very early Armani photograph. But you, you shot Armani too. Yes. Yeah. And I was so nervous the first time I shot him. It's like I was like. Fantastic photo. Yeah. Unbelievable photo. Well, actually, no, you haven't seen the first one because I was shaking so bad that it didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't get focus on it. Hey, well, but, you edited. So yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I lost my train of thought. But you were um, at Pity. So I was at Pity. Yeah. And, you know, the, the big difference when I started shooting, I think the thing that captured the magic is at that time, there was no Instagram. And so the only right. photographs coming out of Pity Woman were my photographs. And, you know, I was very selective in who I shoot. And yeah, I shoot a lot of guys wearing suits and ties and stuff, but I'm very selective and I, I shoot. Um, I think the guys that create the right aura, the guys that I can look at and say, he's going to make a good photograph. I can make the photograph that's going to give the reaction that I want. And one of the things that I hadn't really thought through, but um, I'm proud that happened, is that I think from the first time since maybe the 1930s Esquire, you had guys who were older than 30 years old right. who were real, becoming real fashion icons. You know, the people said, oh, that's how I want to look when I got older, when I yeah. get older. And I love that. You know, I love that none of us are getting younger. None of us can look like an 18-year-old rail-thin model <laughs> that I was shooting people like Domenico and people like Lino and people like Alessandro who really wore the clothes, who understood how to dress well. And I was so happy that people were seeing the same thing I was. Um, and I think that was the big key. And there weren't so many other photographers there to take bad photographs of them <laughs> or to take too many photographs of them. Right. And that's the thing that changed um, not too quickly because I would think I was able to be there alone by myself to help start to create the image of these guys. Where it got much more tricky is when you had a whole lot of other photographers there who um, started shooting the same guys, but they would shoot them every day and without any editorial point of view. So like, you know, the thing that always gets tricky okay. for me with any guy that I've shot, um, especially if I shoot him quite a bit, is, you know, maybe the first time I, I shoot them, the first couple of times I shoot them, you know, several times, because it's almost like having a little bit of a crush, you know, mm-hmm. you see this mm-hmm. guy, he looks really cool. And whether it's a guy or a girl or whatever, but like you see someone, you're like, wow, I really love, you know, this aura, this persona that they're creating, you know, with the hair and everything, a lot of them are very graceful. And so you shoot them a couple of times, and then there always becomes a, a moment when you see them. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the thing they're wearing, maybe it's the light, maybe it's where you're at, you know, uh, indoors, outdoors, whatever. There always becomes a moment when you see them and you don't shoot them. Ooh, the Schumann letdown. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, all my friends, you know, have, have realized, you know, the thing I think that, that separates me and that they trust me from, or they, they trust about me is that I'm going to shoot them when I think they look great, when I can get a great photograph of them. And right. that I'm not there to just be a photojournalist and shoot them, and yeah. whether they look good or bad, that, you know, I've got their back a little bit. And nobody looks good every day, you know? And of course. Every, you know, everybody makes mistakes, everybody's style evolves. And I think that was the thing that really helped um, with pity kind of take off, is that I wasn't, I didn't go into it as a photojournalist, I went into it as, a, as somebody who loves menswear and who really saw the inspiration that a place like Pitti Womo could offer. And so I tried to shoot it in the most inspiring way, with the best guys, looking the coolest, with the best lights and the best background. 
Um, and I think that's why that really took off. That's why it really helped um, create pity. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, it is tough because I've, I remember seeing, you know, I went to, to, to pity at 2011, 2012, and I was like, oh my God, I was like, there's like, there's a sartorialist. And I would see you out there and it would be, you know, my friends and I, we would be like, oh, the Schumann letdown. Cause you, you'd have your camera up and it looked like you were going to take a shot of someone. And then you'd kind of like pull back a bit and you'd lower the camera and we'd be like, damn, what did he just see? How bad was that guy? What was like the, the social and like almost for lack of a better term, like barstool commentary that my friends and I made when we would see who was worthy of a sartorialist photo and who wasn't. And then even other times, like, you know, you would shoot photos of people and I was like, oh, I know he shot that person. Or I know he was sitting there shooting. And then I would go on your site and I'd look for it and I'd be like, oh, they didn't make the cut. They didn't make it. And, and I only say that because, you know, there are other photographers where they just shoot for quantity. And obviously, you know, like listening to you, like you really, it was really about at the, the stars had to align for this shot to be good. And I think that's a true testament to also why your pictures still resonate, you know, and, and it's it they just do so much more for me yeah i think you know it's it helps that i have my own media yeah i am my editor i'm not you know shooting um i you know because i don't feel bad about the other photographers and you know i i think they have a tricky position you know because a lot of them who got into this after me Mm -hmm. you know they're doing it for somebody else and and i know those a lot of those photographers get huge requests they're expected to turn in a huge amount of images and you know, a lot of those people make their money from clicks. And so instead of, you know, and I think one of the problems is not just so many bad photographers, but it's also bad editors. Oops. Yeah, um, that's okay. But they're not editing, you know, they're, they're getting paid by clicks. So they, they put so many images up, so many that they shouldn't, you know, that create a bad image, I think, of pity. Um, just because they think, oh, you know, that guy's so crazy. Let's put him up. That guy's so crazy. Where for me, you know, it's my point of view. I'm editing, you know, this is what I want to show. Um, and I think that, and I really respect my audience, you right. know? And so, and especially in this day of Instagram, what's totally different, you know, the way you lose people is by, by showing too many bad images or too many images that aren't strong. Right. Um, and so I don't even shoot that much. I mean, I probably shoot maybe a third compared to what the other photographer shoots. And yeah, and the editing process is very tricky, you know, because I want to have a certain light or I want to capture, you know, one of the things that I love uh, and is tricky is um, hands, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a way a guy's talking, a way a guy's holding a cigarette or a phone or whatever. And, and so for me, it's kind of all of that, you know, a good photograph is usually, a good photograph is usually made of three things, you know, one third the person one third the light mm-hmm. and one third kind of the place, the background and the setting. And if you don't have all those three, then it's, it's not going to be a great photo. It's not going to be a photograph that's going to make someone stop on Instagram or make someone want to look into it more. But um, I guess the original question was who was telling you about to go about places like Al Bazaar? And, you know, it was really me. You know, I'd get, you know, some, uh, information from other people every once in a while. But like when I would go to somewhere like Milan or Florence, not only was I shooting at the shows, but you know, I didn't have a car. So I'd walk from place to place. I found Al Bazaar by total luck. 
You know, I just happened to be out walking around Milan and I saw these three Japanese guys who looked pretty well put together. Um, turn the corner because you, you know where Alpazar is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of middle, of, it's not in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of the uh, Milan Upper East Side. Yeah. But there's not much else out there. And somehow I ended up out there, I think just by accident. And I saw those three guys, why? And I kind of followed them and <laughs> boom, there was Alpazar. And I'd never heard of it, but I thought, uh, you know, Lino is such a character and there's so many great things that he does. You yeah. know, like that store never goes on sale. Mm-hmm. When you go in there, you know, they don't really, they don't really do it in a seasonal way, which I think is so unique. So the cashmere sweaters are always right to your left when you come in. The dress shirts are always right behind that. The sportswear maybe changes just a little bit, but you know, I think he does so much that's so unique that, um, you know, I'm glad to see that he's become kind of a hero for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a bit eccentric, um, but I like that, you know? People hit me up all the time and say, what have you been wearing lately? Dude, where's that Oxford from? That rugby is incredible. Where did you get it? Rowing Boysers. Rowing Boysers is a young menswear brand that is bringing together the worlds of prep, streetwear, and hashtag menswear. Their casual blazers, jackets, rugby shirts, polos, and oxfords are the best in class. Founded by an ex-rower himself, Jack Carlson created the brand inspired by the traditions, myths, and rituals of the rowing life. Look, I'll be honest, if you're a fan of the pod or not, Rowing Blazers is one of my favorite brands. Jack and his team make great product, they don't skimp on the details, and they're not a company that just manufactured a history to support their product. They've lived it. If you're looking for a killer casual blazer, made in the USA I might add, classic rugby, or you're finally ready to get a wide leg pant, check out rowingboysers.com. Right now, Rowing Boysers is offering Blamo listeners 15% off their first purchase. Go to rowingboysers.com and enter promo code Blamo at checkout. Seriously, I cannot endorse their rugbies and boysers enough. So visit rowingboysers.com and enter the promo code Blamo at checkout for 15% off your order. Yeah, well, I mean, that's so interesting and because, you know, it wasn't just Albazar. I mean, me learning about Italy and and piquing my interest in fashion and making me ultimately you know do everything i can to pursue any career i could in it was really because of you but the best part of what you were doing is you know before you there were magazines and they would just show you yeah it was edited and you were editing too but like magazines didn't take photos of barter of barber shops i, I mean yeah. i distinctly remember you being like this is a great barber in milan and i go to it and i'm like who the hell would ever do that and like you were doing that. And I think you, when you got to show more of the people and the life, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in in this upcoming book that you're doing, it, it opens this world more to, I think, I don't know the right way to say this, but like someone like me, who's an everyman, I'm like, Oh, maybe I can be a part of that too. Mm. Versus only seeing the glam, the glitz and something that I could just never, ever touch. So it's like because of your work, you have in a lot of ways like really democratized um, the entire world of fashion, and and that like you know that to me is just it's everything. Yeah, I mean, I think thank you very much. Sure, um, but I think a big part of that is you know I'm not a kid, and <laughs> you know I didn't start the blog till I was 32 or something, and right. by that time you know I knew. I knew that, uh, you know, fashion and clothes weren't going to change my life, weren't going to change anyone else's life. They're very nice to have. Yeah. Um, I was never interested, 
you know, especially if you grew up a fan of Armani, that kind of life. Right. It's not about the glitz and glamour and about going to parties and stuff. It's really about the design and about the love of design and color and pattern, texture and all those things. Um, and I loved Italy because that, that was the home of so many of the designers I really loved, you know, not only Armani, but also Ferre and, you know, Versace is kind of like the counterpoint for that, you know, the, um, but I loved that lifestyle. And the one thing that you learned that, that I learned very quickly is that you have to trust your instincts. You know, that if you're going to have a voice, you really have to, to, to talk with your real voice. So mm-hmm. I remember very early deciding, do I want to have a voice that sounds like I know everything? And even though I, you know, I had a lot of experience and things, but you know, there's, it's very nuanced. So do you write in a way that makes you sound like you know everything and you're going to tell them things? Or do I use my real voice where I know a lot about some things and some things I'm very curious about and, and I want to know more. And I understood, you know, we talked before that we started recording about sports talk radio, yeah. you know, and, and when I was a stay at home dad and I'd be doing the dishes and stuff, I'd listen to that. And I thought, wow, what a great format. You know, this guy who knows about sports is going to tell you his opinion. And then they let callers come in and listening to that conversation I thought was great. And that's what I understood immediately from the blog was that it's basically the same thing. It's just more um, written form as opposed to um, speaking. Right. And, um, and so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to really speak my opinion, and, and I just have to find the audience that wants to follow that road with me. So, you know, when you've been doing this for a long time like I have, and especially with, the, uh, with Instagram coming along, that really kind of changed the game a little bit in the sense that what I do now is I shoot more, I shoot more of the portraits of people mm-hmm. with the big camera, with the Canon, but then I shoot a lot more of my travel and interiors and other things that I'm interested in with the phone. And, um, and, and allowing that to happen and allowing the evolution from a blog-based you know, uh, media to Instagram uh, as opposed to fighting it and not evolving the way I work, Interesting. I thought, you know, I'm going to share the things I really love. So it was really when Instagram came along that made it easier to take pictures of barbershops or interiors. You know, when I go around Italy and I go to a palazzo in, in um, Torino or something or a candy shop in Torino, I'm like, oh my God, I love this place. You know, it, at first I thought, well, am I going to lose audience um, putting that stuff up and not always just street style? And I thought, I'm not going to lose audience. I just have to get a different audience. You know, mm-hmm. and so you lose some people who only want to see street style or only want to see women's, but then you pick up the people who are interested in interiors or whatever that is. So I found I, I try to always be extremely honest and share the things that I really am passionate about. And if I want to keep doing that, then I just have to be, I have to be consistent enough that you start to replace whatever audience you lose with a new audience that kind of likes that new element that you're picking up. Right. So you've collaborated with countless brands you've put out multiple books you've kind of like achieved it for you know like i would say you're a successful photographer it's pretty easy to say that but was there someone or something that you had in your mind that you had to get to before you felt that way that's a good question no one's ever asked me that question quite that or a question (laughs) quite like that okay um no you know i mean because i was self-taught um I didn't call myself a photographer for probably the first six years or so, because I just didn't, you know, it was one of those kind of fake it till you make it. And, um, and this came along later, but it's something that, you know, has been a dream of mine. 
is that, you know, I told you before we started recording that, you know, one of the people that was a huge influence, there were a couple of people that were huge influences. Mm -hmm. August Sander is one, a German photographer that shot in like the 30s and 40s and did kind of street photography. But his idea was to shoot um, people in all different kind of professions in Germany at that time. But his photographs are very still. You can see one on my wall over here in that back corner. guy looks kind of like a... Um, oh, wow, yeah. Kind of like a uh, undertaker. Yeah. But like you can see the empty influence streets. of my work, very yeah. empty street, very quiet, very really looking right at the camera. Um, so he was a huge, a huge influence. And another one was Steve McCurry, you know, the famous National Geographic photographer. Yeah. And I would look at his, I had a bunch of his books and I'd look at those and I, I remember sitting, I can still see it so clearly. I'd sit in my uh, living room and look at those books and I think, wow, that guy has a cool job. He just walks around the world, <laughs> takes pictures <laughs> and... And I really wanted to figure out how I could make that my job. Yeah. And somehow I figured that out. And I always loved his work. Um, and so I always wanted to meet him. And I figured out he had done something with Pirelli. And I thought, I want to interview him. They, off, they offered me to interview with, to, to do an interview with him. Mm -hmm. And apparently, I, because I was a photographer, I asked really good questions. And just slowly over time, we've become pretty good friends. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the craziest <laughs> things when Jenny thinks it's so funny when, um, when I go have dinner, you know, with Steve or something, she's like, why are you so nervous? I'm going to see Steve tonight. I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> you know, it, because he's such a, a hero of mine. It's dangerous so to nice. meet your heroes. It is, but yeah. I, he is like just so cool, more cool than what you could Im imagine. And, um, and, and so artistic, you know, but very quiet. I mean, him are a, a lot, I find now that I understand why we both do a similar thing, you know, both very quiet. We're about the same. We're, we're so much the same size that when I moved from my other apartment to this apartment, I okay. didn't want to move a lot of my clothes. And one time we were having dinner and I realized he's almost the same size as me. So now Steve McCurry has one of the best wardrobes of clothes <laughs> that I've given him that I didn't want to move from my old apartment. So now sometimes when, when we meet at an exhibit or have dinner, I'm trying to find where he is. And I'm like, oh, there's my shirt. Oh, that's Steve. <laughs> um, so like that was like the, right. the fact that he likes the photo. If you look on Instagram, he likes a lot of my photographs. Yes. Yeah. I think I'm probably the only person in the world that gets text from Steve McCurry with his version of street style photography. He always thinks it's kind of funny if he's in Milan or... India or wherever, and he'll take like a funny little street style shot with his phone and he'll text it to me, but it's still a Steve McCurry photograph. Yeah, um, it is. But it's, that was the thing when he could see what I was doing and liked it, like that was a huge um, boost to my confidence and that we can sit around and talk about photography or talk about whatever. And, um, and the fact, you know, that's a big thing. You know, the Getty Museum, I, I mentioned that before, yeah. you know, the, it just went up the other day, but it's um, um, the history of fashion photography. It's kind of an overview of that. And so I, I haven't seen it yet. I go next week to do a talk there. But from what I understand, I'm like in one of the last rooms, you know, one of the most, because I think it's kind of chronological or something. Sure. But, um, you know, it, it took a while for me to feel like I was a real photographer, but you know, as you do it more and you keep challenging yourself and you realize what I, I know what I'm particularly good at. Mm -hmm. And, um, so once you kind of see that and you keep making it better and, and, and more consistent, now I feel quite comfortable with what I've created and, and what I'm doing, but it took a long time. Yeah. It really, really, really took a long time. Well, I want to jump to what you've been doing recently. Um, you know, a lot of 
you know, I would say that the the street style air quote photographer that that's very crowded these days. And in some ways, some of the people that are taking those photos are phenomenal photographers and some are just people that are there that have a camera. And I think you've really evolved. I would say, yeah, you're a photographer, but because of how you take your pictures and, and what you show, like you're just this observer of all things. And earlier we were talking about this upcoming book you're working on on India. Can I say it's about yeah. India? Okay. Yeah, 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 sorry. And the photos that you were showing, like, you know, it's more of this this documentary, you know, even though you said you're not a photojournalist, I mean, that I, those photos are for, photojournalism to me. They are unbelievable. And we were Thank looking, you. yeah. So what, what interested you about India specifically? Well, you know, um, I've been very lucky to travel a lot yeah. in this job. And I'd been to India once or twice. And, and, you know, you always have to keep evolving and trying to, um, you know, update yourself and not, especially when you have something like a, a social media presence. Right. I find once people kind of figure out what you're doing and you're not surprising them, that's the kiss of death. So you have to constantly be evolving, you know, and that's why I do more interiors or I do more whatever. But, um, you know, like I'd said, Steve McCurry and, and people like August Sander and people like um, Rasai or Bruce Davidson or Lartigue, those were really um, the people that were always my heroes, yeah. you know, photog- photographically, never fashion photographers, like maybe Bruce Weber was a big sure. um, influence, Paolo Reversi was a big influence for different reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I did the things at Fashion Week and, because that was something that I really loved, but I always knew what I wanted to create, and that's something I achieved more in the third book, was really something that was fashion and style. Mm. And actually, if you look right behind you on that wall, see there's a picture of a guy in Chinatown right up there at the top there? Yeah. And that was one of the first photographs that was ever a sartorialist photograph that made me think like, oh... I get what I can do. Like this was a guy I shot in Chinatown with a watching, news hat with a suit that's slightly oversized. Uh, slightly oversized. He yeah. has his hands in the in the sleeves. Yeah, and he's watching guys playing um, like a card kind of thing in Chinatown. And I thought, wow, you know, fashion style is so much more than what you see on the runway, what you see in the magazines. That if I can mix what I know I see on the street mm-hmm. photographically with what I see on the runway, I think I can come up with something unique. And, and so that was one of the first photographs where I realized that about my own work. It's something that I could do in a unique way that I didn't think anyone else could do quite the way I could do. Mm. And so with India, I'd been there a couple of times and I thought, wow, you know, India is just so much more diverse than what I see in books about India. Most of the books you see about India, you know, are very religious and temples and right. very poor people. And the India I was seeing um, was much more diverse. So you would have girls that could be just as cool as any girl you would see in Paris. You had a whole um, growing middle class that you know was starting to play with fashion more in a very interesting way, like what's happening in Russia and yeah. Georgia and all of that. And then you have a um, a very poor class, you know, that because the um, poverty there is so widespread in a lot of places, they don't feel so poor because everybody around them is poor, and the rich people are so secluded. Mm. that they're poor, but you don't get the sense of, of destitution that you get in other places. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, it would be a really fun challenge to, um, to do a book there. And I had already done three books, and I kind of knew how to do it, and, but I wasn't sure that that was going to work. Right. So instead of going to a publisher, 
I started shooting it on my own, you know, and when you do things uh, commercially, you know, the commercial success I've had with Sartorialist is what pays to take a chance on doing a book like India. So, I mean, I basically paid for the whole book up to this point, doing the trips myself. And you said like 13 trips it's now? Probably been, it's probably been like 12, 13 trips, something <laughs> like that, to different places. So I've been almost everywhere now. Wow. All in India? All over India. Yeah. I just have like two, two areas left to go. Um, but, you know, that was really my challenge was to try and do a book that I haven't seen anywhere else that you flip the page. And I think it's the best thing on the three previous books is that it's not just Fashion Week stuff. You flip the page and like you could be in Bhutan, you could be in uh, Peru, you could be in China, you can be in Milan, and they're all shot with the same level of respect and dignity. And, and so I thought I could do that with India. And so I took a chance and I did. And, and so far people have been very um, excited about the opportunities. We've gotten very good reaction from publishers and all. Yeah. Um, but I really, but more than anything, it was a great challenge for me. You know, and like recently in March, after Women's Fashion Week, I did, you know, London and Milan and Paris. Sure. And then I was supposed to come back to New York for a week and kind of get myself together, change the clothes in my suitcase and take off to India for a week and a half, almost two weeks. But it turned out that I ended up getting a job in Paris right after Paris Fashion Week. Uh. So instead of getting to go home, I sent Jenny home with my winter clothes I went to Uniqlo, bought a bunch of cheap summer clothes, went straight to India. <laughs> oh my God. That trip ended up being seven weeks long. Whoa. Um, and, you know, you can follow along on Instagram, but like on that trip when we were in yeah, I remember Italy, you know, we were in Cormayer doing something with Maserati and I'm driving a Maserati around in, the, in these winter mountains and staying at beautiful hotels in Paris and going to fashion shows and beautiful dinners. And then two weeks later, I'm staying in very, very simple accommodations in literally the middle of India. And, you know, I, I, that's the one thing I love the most about the life I've created is that, you know, it's not all one thing. To me, it's really about accepting and, um, and, and showing the incredible diversity of style and coolness. And, you know, fashion is not so important to it, but I love challenging and I love, um, um, you know, the diversity that I put myself in. Yeah. You know? So like, for me, staying in these hotels in India, they were very, very simple, which didn't bother me. What I had not planned it's on- It's a good adjective, by the way. Simple. Uh, simple. I think I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was the kind of hotel where you would have to ask them if they would put toilet paper in the room. Sure. So, Understood. Yeah. And, um, and the kind that you look at and you say, I don't know if I'm going to get under the covers on that bed. I'll sleep on top of the sheets, but I don't know if I'm going to get under the covers. And I would take the, the one towel that they gave you. I would just put on top of the pillow because I didn't necessarily want to put my head on that pillow. Um, but that, that, that part didn't bother me so much. The part I hadn't planned on, because I was kind of prepared for that. Sure. And it doesn't really bother me. And what I hadn't prepared for was that, you know, when I was growing up, I had asthma and it's pretty much fixed, but everybody else in all the other rooms were smoking and it oh. was coming into my room and I hadn't planned on that. And so I could not sleep very well. Um, because so much smoke coming in from the other rooms. So oh, I think next time I, I, if I find myself in that situation, I'm just going to sleep in the car. <laughs> um, I think I'd get better sleep in the car, but, um, but I, that's the kind of thing I really have enjoyed with the challenge. You know, when you challenge yourself is like, what can I do to challenge the audience, to surprise the audience, to surprise myself. And, you know, some of the best moments I've ever had shooting the, the moments where you feel like, wow, this I'm really capturing something special 
have been in India, Um, or whether it's in India or Peru, the moments where you just, you thought, this is why I do it. You know, this is why we were up at 4.30 in the morning, driving to this location to be here, to just put yourself in the spot and, and let life happen Mm. and then be ready to react. Cause like day to day, you know, I shoot very little compared to most other kind of street style photographers. Um, and there's a lot of days when I don't get anything. But when you're in that moment, that's the thing that's totally addictive for me, is that as opposed to people who love doing studio photography, someone like Tim Walker, who creates these beautiful sets, and they see the image ahead of time, and then they, their challenge is to create the, vi- the vision they see. Mm. I like to go about having no idea what's going to happen that day. But when I find myself in that moment, then you've got, you've got split seconds to, to decide, okay, do I want to shoot this? with the light behind the person, in front of the person? Do I have to be high, low? Am I overexposing, underexposing? Um, what kind of reaction? Do I want to have a, an interaction with the person? Do I want to be quiet and you know, not have an interaction, let them keep doing what they're doing? That's what to- is totally addictive. And that kind of stuff happens all the time in India because it's wow. just so surprising and so diverse that... You know, that book went really well. And I, like I had mentioned before, I think maybe the next book will be all menswear. Yeah. Which I think will be really fun. And back to the roots. Right, back to the roots. <laughs> and then maybe go back again and do like a book on Africa or do a book. There's really the, the three places I think you can still do a book like that. India, checked. Then maybe Africa or South America. Mm. Because those two places still have that real um, diversity. Mm. But um, I think that's the thing that's most fun about... Um, the life I've created for myself is, you know, to keep pushing, you know, and to one day be in a super fabulous hotel in Paris and, or Milan, the next day to be in a super simple place, eating local food, you know, luckily, knock on marble, I haven't gotten <laughs> sick yet, but... Yeah, I was going to say that you got to be careful with that. <laughs> you know, like, I'm very healthy, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, no drugs, but, you know, when you're in India or any of those kind of places, you know, I just kind of throw that, first of all, you can't exercise because we're up too early. Yep. Um, but if you're lucky enough to be able to be in those positions, then you just got to live the life. You know, you've got yeah. to, I mean, why not eat the food? Why not take a chance? Why not really kind of submerge yourself in that? So I, that's, it's, it's more risky, but it's because I hate the idea. The only thing I don't like about it is that I hate the idea if I do eat something and get sick that I'm down for three days or two days and miss shooting. Um, has that happened? It hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, but it just, it, you know, it, it, it helps you really understand everything. If you eat the food or, you know, right. a lot of times when you go to those villages, they want to offer you food. And, um, so far there hasn't been a problem, but like you see where they're washing the things, but there are, you know, you want to think, well, they look okay. Yeah. But they just have a to- totally different immune system. Sure. But, you know, so far it hasn't uh, created a problem and it's just created such a, a rich, um, experience wow. that hopefully I can share with the book. That's awesome. You were talking about your audience and like being influenced by them. How much do you think uh, your audience is driving you versus you driving yourself in terms of like pushing yourself to, to do more things? Well, it's totally me. Yeah. I push myself. Yeah. And like I said, you know, if the audience doesn't like it, then it's up to me to go get an audience that does. Mm. So I never worry about um, you're not, you're never chasing for clicks like we were talking about earlier. No. Yeah. And, you know, like I'd mentioned before, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the audience is, uh, like 65% women, 35% men. 
Which, which is, I was shocked when I, I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, most a lot of people do. A lot of men do, <laughs> and women think, oh, it's all women because people to show see, you how. <laughs> yeah, well, people see what they want to see, you know, and so they yeah. notice the post. Like a lot of guys only notice the guy post. Girls notice the girl post. You know, if you do a beautiful uh, landscape or something like that, a lot of people notice that. But it's very tricky because I really love both both audiences. I feel very lucky that I'm one of the, one of the few that you know because. Most guys that do this kind of thing have a, a you know 98% men as their mm. audience. The women that do it have 98% women. Where I really have to kind of um, straddle that line. And you know, my my uh, professional experience was almost all women's wear. Mm. So when I had the showroom, it was all women's. When I worked at Valentino, it was all women's, except a short little time in men's. And um, so I really love that challenge. But the one thing you realize is that you can't chase clicks because. You know, I could put the best, best, best men's photograph up and 65% of the audience doesn't care unless he's really handsome. Right. <laughs> um, and I could put up the best women's photograph, 35% doesn't care unless she's really cute. And um, so the thing I've learned is that you, you can't let the audience drive you. You have to put up what you believe in because, you know, I love the men's shots and I love talking about men's wear, but I know that that's going to get much lower reaction than you know, a halfway good women's one. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's just the way it is. And I'm totally comfortable with that. You know, like my, yeah. my it, sometimes it might look like my engagement is lower than some other people, but that's because, you know, if I put up a great men's thing, I could say something really great and give a really great opinion mm -hmm. and something that would make a great engagement with men, but 65% of it doesn't care because it's, they're women. Right. But it's made a great challenge. And I think it's, um, you know, and, with uh, Jenny now, I think she's a great, um, she kind of helps me with the women's in terms of like, she has great style. Mm -hmm. Women really like her. Um, she really wasn't that interested in being that involved in that. You know, we're a true couple in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, I really fell in love with her as a person. But, you know, slowly over time, I think the audience has really gotten used to her and her involvement with what I do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not that I push her and show, I try not to show her too much, but when you're with someone and you truly think they have a great style, I feel bad not showing it. Mm. And I think she has, you know, such a unique style, you know, it's so different than most of the other girls that I shoot that, you know, I trust that I built an audience that appreciates something like that. Right. So you can just never, I find, I don't let the audience um, tell me what to do. But I'm very sensitive that I have to believe in it. And so if they don't agree with it, that's fine. But yeah. let's have a discussion, you know, and sometimes you get that, oh, I want to see more of this. I want to see more of that. They also don't quite appreciate how tough it is <laughs> yeah, to get some of that say. stuff. You know, like even at that men's panel, <laughs> I think it was David Coggin said, oh, I really love Scott's Oh, the Scott style side. panel. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was saying, oh, I really loved all those kind of old Italian guys that Scott shoots. You know, I wish he'd do more of that. It's hard to find those guys. They're not easy. Yeah. You know, and so it happens when it happens. Right. And so you can't, you can't make it happen. You just have to put yourself, that's what I try to, that's a, the one thing I think I do pretty good is I still try to shoot, go out and shoot every day and, and put myself in the position to find it, but it's not easy. Yeah, of course. Well, Scott, this has been unbelievable. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's good talking to you. See ya. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tanlines. If you like this episode, there's tons more to listen to at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. 
While you're at it, tell a friend and leave a review. It helps what others discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just send us an email and say, hey, I want to be in the Slack group. Thanks again for listening.